0: not of works, lest any man should boast. For I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor powers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing, is able to separate us from the love of God which is in Christ Jesus our Lord. For of Him, and to Him, and through Him are all things, to whom be the glory forever and ever. Amen. Before we get started, let's make sure we're in fellowship, ready to study God's Word. We'll have a few moments of silent prayer. For the use of First John one nine, if necessary, and then we'll open. Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for your grace. That in eternity past, you exercised your initiative to provide a perfect plan for the human race. And in your omniscience, you knew of Adam's sin and you provided a perfect solution that would not be based on who we are and what we do, but on who Jesus Christ is and what he did on the cross. Father, now as we continue our study of this fantastic spiritual life that you have provided for us, as we study this in the Upper Room Discourse, we pray that you would help us to understand these things and to see how they relate to our own lives, that we would be responsive to the teaching of Your Word and challenged under the teaching ministry of God the Holy Spirit. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. Open your Bibles to John 15, and we continue our study of the Upper Room Discourse. John chapter 15, and we are in the Vine Analogy. By way of review last time, Since we have a number of visitors this morning, we've been going through this step-by-step, building this analogy. And it culminates, last time we finished with the statement in verse 11, these things, meaning all of these doctrines that the Lord has explained in the upper room, these things I have spoken to you, that my joy may be in you, and your joy may be made full. So we came to a position where we recognized that joy in the Christian life goes far beyond uh, simply human emotion. It is predicated upon an understanding and assimilation of divine truth into the soul. So let's just review what we covered last time in terms of the doctrine of joy. Point number one, joy is the biblical term, comes from the Greek word kara. It's a biblical term for the inner stability, contentment, and tranquility which belongs to God and is bequeathed to men and is radically different from human happiness. Human happiness is, point two, human happiness is based on circumstances, people, and emotions. Circumstances change, people vacillate, our emotions fluctuate, but for us to have the kind of contentment, stability, and happiness that God provides, it must be based on something that never changes. That, of course, is located only in the person and essence of God. So joy is the biblical term for the inner stability, contentment, and tranquility which belongs to God is bequeathed to man. It is called my joy, and also in this passage, in the next chapter, my peace, which distinguishes it from any other category of joy or peace. And that human happiness, point two, is based on circumstances, people, And emotion. The dictionary defines happy as that which is characterized by good luck, fortune, or providential circumstances and is characterized by feelings of pleasure and satisfaction. Of course, that is quite different because God is eternal. Uh, Human happiness does not apply to Him, so we must look to a better definition. Point number three the joy of Christ is based on the internal absolutes of God's character and plan. We must ground our joy, not on that which changes, but on that which never changes. Point number four, an important concept to think through and to understand is that in terms of God's own character, God's joy is related to his essence. We must think about these things in terms of divine essence, otherwise we'll get into some pretty, uh, at least, shady theology with some, some uh, difficult concepts. I think one of the most Difficult things for some people to think through sometimes is the concept of emotion and God. The Bible uses a lot of terms related to, divine, well, related to human emotion. Now, the technical term for this is anthropopathism. Now, we should be familiar with the term anthropomorphism. An anthropomorphism is a statement like the eyes of God, the hand of God, the nose of God. God does not have shape, physical form like man does. And so we know that these are simply the, uh, the act of attributing to God human form, human shape, human physical attributes in order to communicate something about God's plan and God's procedure to man. Well, the same thing is true about emotion. And the term is anthro, which means from the Greek word anthropos, meaning, meaning man, an anthropopathism, from pathos, meaning emotion. And this is attributing to God emotion he does not actually possess in order to communicate something about his policy and his procedures to mankind. It is using human emotion as the point of an analogy so that God is on this side, man is on this side, and in order to communicate something about God, we are going to use human emotion as an analogical concept in order to make things clear. The interesting thing, and I've been involved in some pretty lengthy and detailed discussions about this whole concept of whether or not God possesses emotion over the last two or three years, and there's a lot of interesting things that come out in this, one of which is that I cannot find a systematic theology before the late 19th century that talks about emotion in relationship to the Godhead, not one. In fact, if you go back to the Middle Ages, the term that they use is passion, and passion is always something negative. You read Aquinas, you read some of the other uh, medieval theologians where they have a lot of very precise discussion, not all of which we would agree with, but they are very precise in the way they think through these things, and they recognize the fact that if God is omniscient, and immutable, then His knowledge never changes. He knows all the knowable. Now, an emotion is a response. Now, if God never learns or increases in knowledge, He always knows everything, then God never... Emotion, if God gets sad because we do something, that would imply that God's learning something new. But God's always known I'm going to fail Him. So why that can't change... The essence of God. He's always known that. So one of the major problems in thinking this through is if you attribute emotion to God, there is a hidden assumption there that implies a challenge to his immutability. And so we have to think very carefully about how we look at these words. In fact, when you look at things that God says, uh, like Esau I loved and Jacob I hated, God obviously doesn't hate. Hate is a sin. And those are just anthropopathisms to describe acceptance and rejection. They are not necessarily terms even talking about God's love at that particular point. But we have to think through these things. For example, God's joy is related to his eternality. God has always had maximum joy. There never was a time when he did not have this joy. And that is related to his immutability. Immutability means that God never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. Within God, there is no shifting or turning shadow. God is always the same. That means that God's joy never increases or diminishes, and it is always the same. That indicates that we cannot make God either happier or sad or sadder "...by our decisions or activity, because that would imply a change in the divine attitude." So God is, always has maximum joy, and it is not based on anything other than who He is and His own internal character and essence. "...in God's omniscience, He has always known all of the knowable. Therefore, nothing can occur that surprises God." This shocks God. Nothing can take place in human history of which God has not always been aware, and so nothing can limit or reduce His joy. His joy, therefore, is based on His knowledge. Now, that's the difference between divine joy and human happiness. Human happiness is based upon circumstances, people, and emotion. God's joy is based on His knowledge. Therefore, if God is going to share His joy with us, it is a joy that is based on knowledge. That is why Jesus says, These things I have spoken to you, that is knowledge, that is information, that is doctrinal teaching, these things I have spoken to you that my joy may be in you. That is why when you come to James chapter 1, verse 2, and we're commanded to count it all joy because when you encounter various trials, and then the next verse begins in the English with just the participle knowing. It is a causal, adverbial participle in the Greek, which means because you know. You count it all joy because you know something. So, biblically, the joy that we have in the Christian life is based not on circumstances, but is based on the knowledge, knowledge of doctrinal principles that are absolutes. So, I know this may be a new concept for some of you that perhaps God is not emotional, and you'll just have to stop and think about it. If it's too much for you, then just set it aside and come back to it later. I know I taught that last a little bit last week, and I taught it when I was out in L.A., and there were a couple of people that, that uh, were real surprised by that, but the more they thought about it, the more they understood what the, the concept is. So just think about it a little bit. It's, we have to be very careful what we attribute to God and make sure it, ha- it doesn't affect other arenas of theology. Now, if you think about the flow of history and the history of ideas, one of the things that, that I haven't fully developed, I don't have the time, I don't have the research to go through resources to research this out completely, but one of the things that took place in the middle 19th century is the advent of Freudian psychology, which elevated emotion to a very high level in terms of ideas. And all of a sudden, there's all this em- emphasis culturally on human emotion. It's interesting... And I think it's more than simply coincidental that it is at the same time that our society and Western culture begins to put an emphasis on emotion, it is at that same time that you begin to read theologians who start talking about emotion in God. You don't have that. Emotion is not even an issue in ideological discussion, philosophical discussion like this, until you get its its emphasis by Freudian psychology. So all I'm saying is we have to be careful that we don't let certain trends that take place in our culture cause us then to redefine who and what God might be. And if you read, go home, you have a problem with this, go home and look up in your Webster's Dictionary how it defines emotion and then answer the question, do you really want that to be true of God? Because the definition in Webster's Dictionary of emotion is a very changeable, fluid concept, and that really challenges God. So part of this has to do with definition problems, Part of it has to do with the fact that in a Freudian psychoanalytical culture that has, uh, as Bruce Shelley at Denver Theological Seminary has called it, in a psychoanalytical age, we uh, automatically think emotions are impartent, But that is simply the myopic view of late 20th century Americans that are self-absorbed and narcissistic, according to the culture of narcissism by Christopher Lash. So there's a lot of discussion on this material, and uh, I'm amazed at how how few people want to think very precisely and consistently on this particular subject. Okay, point number five. Therefore, in eternity past, God determined in the Council of Divine Decrees to share His joy with mankind. This meant that first He would share His thinking with mankind. That is why the Scripture is called the thinking or the mind of Christ in 1 Corinthians 2.16. We have the mind of Christ because we have the mind or the thinking of Christ. Uh, Philippians 2.5, we can have this mind or this thinking in you, which was in Christ Jesus. We can then uh, share his joy. Point six, the basis for true joy begins at the cross because it is at the cross, at salvation, only by becoming a believer in the Lord Jesus Christ, being regenerated, having a new nature that we can begin to learn and assimilate the truths of Scripture to transform our thinking, which is the basis for having uh, a stable mindset and the joy of Christ. Psalm 51.12, David refers to this in his confession where he says, "...restore to me the joy of your salvation." It is salvation that is the starting point for having the joy of Christ. But it increases incrementally as we learn and apply the word of God. Point number six, human happiness is always based on transitory circumstances and is thus superficial, temporary, and unable to sustain us through times of adversity. Because human emotion is by its very nature uh, transitory, it cannot sustain in times of trouble. Only when we have something that is unchangeable can we have stability in trouble. Point number seven, the key to maintaining divine joy is to make your spiritual life the highest priority in life. The key is to make your spiritual life the highest priority in life. And then when we are grounded in, in doctrine, and we learn to think objectively on the basis of the reality of God's Word, then we can avoid being disappointed, disillusioned, and disgruntled by the details of life. And then finally, joy is the byproduct of abiding. That's what the passage is talking about. Abide in Christ, and the result is joy. And we saw the same thing. In Galatians chapter 5, when the command is to walk by the Spirit, and then the Spirit produces the fruit of the Spirit in us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, and, and the rest of the fruit of the Spirit. The issue is that if you are doing what God says to do, the priority, we can't produce fruit. It's not our job, in the analogy of the vine, it's not the branch that produces the fruit. It is the branches abiding in the vine and the vine produces the fruit. Jesus said, With, Without me, you can do nothing. Now, I want to orient this to what we've been teaching in a broader context in uh, James in our study of stress busters. Remember, adversity is the outside pressure of negative circumstances on us. And stress is defined as the inside pressure of, in our response to the outside pressure of adversity. Uh, in our life, so adversity is outside pressure on the soul. Stress is the inside pressure on the soul. Soul adversity is what circumstances do to us. Stress is what we do to ourselves. Adversity is uh, inevitable. Stress is optional. Stress is virtually tantamount to sin nature control, and adversity is. I mean, stress is tantamount to sin nature control of the soul when we decide to handle the adversity on the basis of our own procedures, our own plans, our own priorities, as opposed to relying upon God's promises, God's procedures, God's plan, and God's promises. So we know from the scriptures that when we trust God, God provides, he is our protector. These images in the Psalms are profound. They talk about God as our shield, our bulwark. That he is a strong tower. He is our rock. So we know from other illustrations, Christ is also said to be our rock. So, really, when we're in fellowship with him, according to John 15, we are abiding with Christ. We have seen in the last several weeks that abiding is fellowship, it is not belief in Christ, it's not salvation, it's talking about fellowship, it's living. In Christ, with a vital relationship to Him, it's tantamount to the Galatians concept of walking by means of the Spirit. So we are abiding with Christ. Christ then is our defense; He is our protector. Now, what I'm going to do? Now, you visitors, just hang with me on this because I know this is this is new to you. I'm pulling it together, several different concepts that we've covered on Wednesday night and Sunday morning, try to pull it together to give you an image here. We have talked about the fact that God takes all of these various doctrines. We've extrapolated those doctrines to ten basic skills called stress busters. Applying the stress busters, we avoid stress. God says that, uh, you know, the world says we manage stress. God says as a believer, you can avoid stress. You can go through all kinds of adversity and have absolute perfect peace, calm, and stability. It is living inside that strong tower that God provides for us, which is really the doctrines of Scripture. I'm shifting metaphors a little bit, but we built this on the concept of... Let me skip through this a minute. Of a fortress. Here's the soul fortress. The soul is what's inside the fortress. The mentality, the volition, the conscience, this is the real us. It's inside the fortress. When we are trusting in the Lord, we are inside the soul fortress abiding with Christ. Let's pull these metaphors together. This is where Christ lives. We are dwelling in the fortress with Christ and he becomes our protector so that no matter what adversity comes, that's where we're protected. What surrounds us in terms of the ten stress busters that I've taught, confession, confession, Filling of the Holy Spirit, faith, rest, drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation, impersonal love or unconditional love for all mankind, personal love for God, occupation with Christ, inner happiness or joy. All of these are the basic doctrines that comprise that that fortress. Remember, the doctrines are the thinking of Christ. So we're, we're pulling all of this together to see in this imagery how abiding with Christ protects us from the onslaughts of adversity in life so that we can have stability and joy. That's why Jesus comes here at this conclusion. He talks about joy and he relates it to love, which, as we have seen, are the advanced spiritual skills, the basic spiritual skills a new new young believer works on is confession, filling of the Holy Spirit, walking by means of the Holy Spirit, Faith rest drill, grace orientation, doctrinal orientation. That's the foundation. You build on that with the more advanced concepts. Now, having said that, let's come back and look at what happens in this vine analogy. To get a little background, I want you to hold your place here, and let's turn to Psalm 104:15. I want you to read this verse, perhaps underline it. When I, I, I sometimes mention or quote this verse, and people don't really believe it's in the Bible. So I want you to, to go there and see it for yourself. Psalm 104, verse 15. Now the context of this entire psalm is to praise God for what He has provided for man. It begins back in verse 1, Bless the Lord, O my soul, O Lord my God, Thou art very great, Thou art clothed with splendor and majesty. And the first four verses are a praise to God for all that He has done. And then it moves from who He is to a, a rehearsal of what He has done in creation. Verse 5, He established the earth upon its foundations so that it will not totter forever and ever. That means that God controls human history and God controls the environment so we don't have to worry too much about what man can do since God has supp- is keeping everything together. It is Jesus Christ who holds the molecules together Verse 6, that it's covered with the deep is with the garment. And it's further explanations of the original creation and then I think the flood. And it talks about all that God has done and God supplies. And then look at verse 14. He causes the grass to grow for the cattle, food for the cattle, vegetation for the labor of man. So that he he is the one ultimately who brings in the harvest. He is the one who causes the growth. So that he can bring forth food from the earth. And what? In verse 15. And wine which makes man's heart glad. That's what we want to look at. The scripture says that God is the one who has supplied wine for the joy of man's soul. Am I losing my... God has supplied wine for the joy of man's soul. In other words, God recognizes that there is validity. And we're not talking about drunkenness. We're talking about just enjoying the fruits of God's creation here. And that God is not a legalist, as many are. He's not a teetotaler. And He has supplied the fact that wine is, is good on occasion for certain reasons. There's a legitimate use of wine. Now, let's... Plug this into our vineyard analogy in John 15. Jesus Christ is the vine. God the Father is the vine dresser. Now, the owner of the vineyard is growing the vine and the grapes for the purpose of enjoying the end product. The picture that we have is the end product is related to joy. In Psalm 104:15. Now, what happens in the growth process on the vine is, as we have seen, to, to summarize everything that's gone on, so the visitors aren't, new people here aren't lost, is that there are two branches mentioned in verse two. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, he takes away. And we saw that the Greek word there for taking away is really iro, and it means to lift up. The first branch is every branch in me that is in fellowship. We saw the technical use of in me in the Gospel of John always refers to fellowship. So these are branches in me in fellowship with the Lord that don't bear fruit. And then the second category was the branches that bear fruit that are pruned. What happens in the spring uh, pruning time in the vineyards in in Israel at this time was that uh, branches, these aren't twigs, these are branches Sub-branches had clusters of grapes on them. They, they needed to be pruned back so that, that instead of putting energy and sugar into the leaves and into the sucker branches, all the sugar would flow into the grape to make it sweeter so you could have better wine. Other branches didn't have any fruit on them, but they, they still needed to grow. They were tied up onto the trellis to get more sun and more air so that next year they could produce grapes. So the first category of branch is the immature but growing believer who still needs to be lifted up and encouraged so that he can produce fruit down the road. The second category is the believer who is producing fruit but needs to be trimmed and pruned so that the sugar can get to his fruit so that it can produce wine, which is for the joy of man's soul. See how this hangs together? That's the goal. That's why the joy is the ultimate in Christian life. You don't get there until you have spiritual maturity. This is not something, the joy that Jesus is talking about doesn't just happen because you're a new believer. It's not emotion, it's not ecstatics. It's not coming into church and singing a lot of wonderful hymns and going home and just feeling buoyant because you've had such a wonderful time with the Lord this morning. This is the result of a lengthy process of spiritual growth. It is not until the plant reaches maturity that you have fruit production. Fruit production is not stem growth or leaf growth. It is not spiritual growth. It is spiritual production that comes as a result of maturity. And that produces joy. And that's the purpose for all this. So that God can then in turn enjoy the fruit of His vineyard. God's purpose in our fellowship with Him is to bring us to maturity. The problem today is that most pastors, most Christians, most churches... Only have a vision for bringing people to Christianity and not to maturity. Maturity is tough because it produces a challenge before people that is far beyond that is far beyond simply showing up and singing hymns for 30 minutes and hearing a 20-minute sermonette for Christianettes. It takes time, energy, and effort, and a tremendous amount of study in the scriptures to let our thinking be transformed because one of the largest problems we have is not just our sin nature and our proclivity to sin but is the antagonism of the cosmic system and cosmic thinking that has already permeated our souls that's why Jesus is going to come back to deal with this enemy in verse 18 from 18 on the problem is the world system and how we need to deal with the world system if we are going to advance in spiritual life But here he's talking about the joy that is the result of maturity. So he concludes the discussion of the vine analogy. He brings this to a head by talking about these things I've spoken to you that my joy may be in you. It is that sweetness from the vine that goes into the fruit. He's going to put his joy in you as a result of doctrine that your joy, the fruit in the cluster of grapes... That your joy may be full. Play Ra'o here means, has the idea of bringing it to completion. Now then he moves from the concept of joy and inner happiness, the joy of the Lord, to the concept of love. He's going to remind them, it's fascinating to study the Lord's teaching here. How he brings in a new concept, then he goes back to something he's already taught earlier. And brings that in. Then he takes it to the next step. Then he brings in a new concept, goes back, picks up two or three threads he's already covered, and ties that in. This whole episode began after the cleansing, uh, the removing of, of uh, Judas at the Passover meal. And then at the conclusion of the Passover meal, Jesus made the statement in John thirteen thirty four. The new commandment I give to you, that you love one another, even as I have loved you, that you also love one another. By this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Now, we have the command to love as Christ loved. Love one another, number one. Love as Christ loved, number two. And number three, by this, all men will know that you are my disciples. Now, what have we seen in John 15 already? We have seen the command is to abide, that that is what produces fruit, and... Glorification of God the Father in verse 8. And look at verse 8. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so what? Prove to be my disciples. And the word there we saw last time in the Greek is not prove. It's genomai, which means to be. In other words, it's coming to the fullness of what it really means to be a disciple. Come to the completion of that process. But what is it that gives evidence of being a disciple? It is Loving one another as Christ loved the church. So now you see how these different threads are being woven together to bring to our understanding how this process works. Jesus talks about fruit. He talks about joy. And then he says, comes back to the love issue in verse 12. This is my commandment. He's reminding them. This is my commandment that you love one another. Now notice. Up to this point, it has been commandments, plural, verse 10, if you keep my commandments. This is talking about all the mandates. Now, when he comes in verse 12, he's talking about my commandment. He's specifically talking about this new commandment given to believers to exemplify their discipleship before the human race and before angels. This is my commandment, that you love one another just as I have loved you. Okay, it's a reminder. He's going back, repetition, repetition, repetition. He goes back to the beginning to remind them of the commandment. Now he's going to bring in a principle. Verse 13. Greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. Now this is a great definition of love. That if you love someone, you will sacrifice yourself completely for that person. That is the evidence of Of that love. Now, normally, what will happen here is someone will take the time to talk about how this is exemplified in the cross. This and it is exemplified in the cross, but that's not what Jesus is talking about here. This is not a cross passage. Now, I'm going to go out on a limb here because I've been wrestling with this thing all week long. If you take this passage as a this verse as referring to what Jesus is getting ready to do on the cross then you've got a major problem with your understanding of the the atonement. Because what Jesus says, greater love has no one than this, that one lay down his life for his friends. It's the plural of philos. For friends. Then He will say in verse 14, you are my friends. Okay, verse 13 is laying down his life for only his friends, not his enemies. Romans 5.8 says, But God demonstrated His love toward us in that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. That we were at enmity with God. We were His enemies. And that Christ died for His enemies. If you take verse 13 as being cross-related, you've got to end up with limited atonement. That Christ dies only for the saved. Because here He says, that one laid down His life for His friends, not His enemies. You are my friends, He then says, If you do what I command you. Now, if this is talking about salvation in verse 13, then you end up with a work salvation. That if you do what I tell you to do, then you'll be my friends, then I'll die for you. But that can't be what this is saying because that is a contrast with many other passages in Scripture. What Jesus is saying in verse 13 is not greater love has no one than this, that I lay down my life for you. But greater love has no one than this, that you are my friends if you lay down your life for me. He's calling them to discipleship here. He's calling them to commitment in terms of their future ministry as apostles. To put him first, to lay down his life. You are my friends if you do what I command you. They're already believers. But if you do what I command you, then you will be at the level of the friend of God because you are fulfilling my purpose and my plan for your life. Now, I think that's the only way you can take this, or else you're going to have problems with the whole doctrine of unlimited atonement, which is clearly stating passages like 1 Timothy 4.10, that Christ died for all men, especially believers. That indicates a universal atonement, that He died for all men, but it is applied only to those who believe on the Lord Jesus Christ as their Savior. And so here He is indeed challenging them to application of what it means to love one another. And that means to be willing to lay down their life one for another and even for him and in and the cause of carrying the gospel. And I think about 80% of the 11 died as martyrs for their faith. Uh, we don't know that for sure, but according to most of the traditional stories, uh, uh, trad- traditions that we have of what happened with Matthew, and Peter was, of course, crucified upside down, Paul was beheaded, uh Thomas gave his life in India I think um, uh one of the James gave, of course one, one James was was killed in Jerusalem another James was uh, uh martyred in Africa I think Matthew was martyred up in the uh northern Greece Macedonia or maybe the Russian area but it varies according to disciple but almost all of them ended up giving their life as part of their their uh, job responsibilities or fulfilling their job responsibilities as an apostle taking the gospel to the lost so that is the background for this Jesus is challenging them to move to that upper level of spiritual growth that is characterized by unconditional and impersonal love for one another. The reason we use the word impersonal is because it doesn't involve personal knowledge of someone. You can go out and witness to somebody. You don't know them there's no personal relationship there there's no personal knowledge there but you are loving them in spite of that. And it is unconditional, and you're loving them because Christ loved them and gave himself for them. So then he goes from this challenge of loving one another, this challenge of their commitment to discipleship to verse 15, No longer do I call you slaves, for the slave does not know what his master is doing, but I have called you friends. Again, Philos, again, for all things that I have heard from my Father, I have made known to you. You are my friends because I have revealed everything to you that I am to reveal to you. Not everything there is to reveal, because Jesus was, God the Father committed to Jesus a specific body of revelation to communicate during the first advent. That's what he was referring to. I have completed my mission. I have revealed to you everything that the Father gave me to reveal to you. And now you are no longer slaves who do not know anything, but you are my friends. And as he said back in verse 14, I will send you the Holy Spirit who will then remind you of all things. Then in verse 16, he says, you did not choose me, but I chose you and appointed you that you should go and bear fruit. And here, fruit, I think, still has the primary meaning of internal character. It is not, although it might. Paul does use fruit in one place in Romans 1 where it might refer to uh, converts. That's the only time I, I traced through. While I was on the flight back, I had my uh, my concordance on my computer, and I did a word study of fruit. It's used about 88 times in the New Testament. And there's one place where it might refer to uh Converts. But in every other place that the word fruit is used, it refers to internal transformation of character. So I think that to be consistent, that's probably the sense here, that he has called them to go and be mature. Conversion, it's not our responsibility to convert people. It is God's responsibility to make the truth clear to them under the executive ministry of God the Holy Spirit. But it is our job to communicate the gospel. But it's not our job to get people saved. We can't manipulate them to be saved. We can't force them to be saved. That's their Decision that's their volition, is our job as ambassadors for Christ to continuously communicate the gospel to everyone that comes within our sphere of influence so that we can make the issue clear to them and pray that God would make the issue clear to them. Jesus said, I appointed you. And I think that that this refers to the fact that they are apostles. This is not a a command that is uh, directly given to us but is a command that is related to their apostolic uh, appointment. They have been appointed to go and bear fruit, that your fruit should abide, that it should remain. See, this is the, the ongoing thing, fellowship, that they should uh, uh, communicate the gospel. There would be those who trusted in Christ and then go on to pursue spiritual maturity and bear fruit, that your fruit should remain, that whatever you ask of the Father in my name, he may give to you. Now, notice the prayer clause again. Skip back to verse 7. Verse 7, we had this same emphasis on prayer. And I think one of the greatest issues, and I've struggled with this for years, and there's a lot of debate over it. One of the most difficult hermeneutical issues in John 15 is who does the you refer to? Is Jesus speaking restrictively to the eleven? That means, is he just talking to them? This is what you're going to do because you're going to be my disciples. Or is he speaking through them to the entire church? You see, a lot of times people want to jump to the conclusion that he must be speaking to the entire church through the apostles. And that whatever he said to them applies to us as well. But I take it that what's happening here is he's giving them their marching orders. This is almost tantamount to the Great Commission in Matthew 28:19 and 20. He is calling them to a level of commitment and he is saying, if you, you 11 guys, if you remain in fellowship with me and my words stay in you, which is their doctrinal orientation, ask whatever you wish it shall be done to you. You will go out and have signs and wonders and all of the all of the signs that attest to the fact that you are my representatives and I will answer whatever you ask. And then he goes into the discussion about loving the Father, uh, keeping His commandments, abiding in Him, having joy, loving one another, which is specifically related to them. And then he comes back and says, You did not choose me, I chose you. This has got to be directly related to the apostles. And I appointed you. He doesn't appoint us. We have ambassadorship later on, but this appointment he's talking about here is apostolic. This doesn't apply to us at all directly. I appointed you that you should go and bear fruit, and your fruit should remain that whatever you ask the Father in my name, he will give it to you. So once again, we see this prayer promise is primarily directed to the apostles. So therefore, to claim the, these promises, I think, in our lives is a miss. Application. Now, we have many other prayer promises that are very similar. For example, we've looked at 1 John 5, 11, and 12. We've looked at several other passages that communicate these same truths, to, similar truths to every believer. But these passages are spoken from Jesus to his disciples, not to anyone else. And that is so important to understand in interpretation. You always have to ask the question who is speaking? Who are they speaking to? And is the application limited to them, or does it have a broader range? And we have to be careful there. There are many mistakes made in the Old Testament, claiming promises that were made only to Israel that have nothing to do with church-age believers. The principles don't even apply to church-age believers. Uh, for example, the passage in, what is it, First Chronicles, if my people who are called by my name repent and turn to me, then I will prosper them. And that comes out of Solomon's dedication prayer, to the temple and the whole context has to do with the Deuteronomic blessings and cursings of the Mosaic Law and that passage cannot ever be applied to any other people other than Israel and has nothing to do with the United States and yet you always hear somebody who doesn't know the Scripture misapply that passage and try to relate it that if people in America would just repent and turn to God, then He would bless us. But that's not what it's talking about. It's talking about the covenant nation of Israel In that passage, we have to make sure that the promises we claim are directed to us. One one reason I think people claim that sometimes, well, Scripture does, doctrine doesn't work. God doesn't answer his promises. Well, that's because you're claiming a promise made to somebody else. God didn't make that promise to you. So we have to understand the, and that's called interpretation. Interpretation is what does the passage mean in its original context, original setting to the original audience. Application is what does it mean to me. And if you jump to application without doing the proper work of interpretation, then you will end up with misapplication. So Jesus is making this promise to the disciples regarding their prayer that as they go out into a pagan world to communicate the gospel, that he will be with them and he will answer whatever they ask in order to give them the credentials they need to establish their ministry. And then in verse 17 we see the... The frame here of this passage, it's really an include, what's called an inclusio. It starts off with the commandment to love one another in verse 12 and concludes with that commandment in verse 17. This I command you, that you love one another. This is the point of this entire section is abiding so we can love one another. This is the mark of the disciple of Christ, the true follower, the mature believer, is love for one another, which is more than just an absence of mental attitude sins, of not hate, envy, jealousy, bitterness, but is a positive command to, as, as Jesus said, be not just walk a mile with a person, but two miles. If they ask for your shirt, give them your coat too. It is something that is positive and beneficial towards the other person and not just an absence of, of negative emotions. And, of course, ultimately... What God means by love is exemplified on the cross. Because there Jesus became, he was mistreated, he was abused, he became a... Innocent victim, these people I got in a discussion with somebody in L.A. about the death penalty and their argument was, well, they're innocent people who are always convicted. I said, aren't we glad that God did not take that position? Because if God took the position that there would be no death penalty because an innocent person might be be executed, then we would not have a salvation. Jesus Christ, all of Christianity is based on the fact that the death penalty is legitimate even though innocent, sinless, perfect humanity, Jesus Christ went to the cross and died for our salvation. So our whole salvation is based on the fact that somebody was executed who didn't deserve to be executed. Maybe you'll think differently about the death penalty and jurisprudence next time. With our heads bowed and our eyes closed. Father, we do thank you for your word for all of its clarity and precision, for the fact that it challenges so many of our social concepts and the ideas that we pick up from the culture around us. We know that Your Word is absolute truth and it is, it is infallible and it is authoritative. Father, we thank You for Your grace that You, even though we were Your enemies, we were antagonistic to You from the moment of birth, dead in sin, that You sent Your Son, Jesus Christ, to die on the cross as our substitute, that He who knew no sin became sin for us. Father, we pray that there's anyone here this morning who is unsure of their eternal destiny, uncertain of their salvation, that right now they would take the opportunity to make that sure. Scripture says there is no other name under heaven given among men whereby we must be saved. All that is necessary is that you believe in the Lord Jesus Christ. So right now, right where you sit, you can make that important decision that determines your eternal destiny. Do you believe Christ died on the cross for your sins? That is the issue. On faith alone in Christ alone, you have eternal life. You're a child of God. You're instantly regenerated, and you enter into a new spiritual life. And you will have an eternal destiny with God, God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit in heaven. Father, we pray for the rest of us that as believers we would be challenged by these things challenge to push on to spiritual maturity that we can exemplify your grace and be models of your grace and examples to all the world and all the angels as we witness as part of our ambassadorship. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.